and welcome to the Famous Five podcast, in which we share with you a Famous Five adventure written by Enid Blyton. Today's book is Five Go to Smuggler's Top. If you haven't read the book and you don't want to be subject to spoilers, please turn off now and come back when you've read it. And welcome to the Famous Five podcast. We're up to book four, which is Five Go to Smuggler's Top. How are you doing, Jen? I'm really well, thank you. Having some um, kitty drama at the moment, which is our house cat, Tom Brown, who I think I've mentioned before, squeezed himself out of a window and now doesn't want to come back in the house. I think he fancies himself as a wild beast. So he's living... Uh, in our neighbour's garden and our garden and won't come in the house and when we try and approach him he acts like he's never seen us before which is a bit sad but um, I mean we're keeping him fed so we're hoping he'll come indoors and then I guess we'll never let him outside of the house again. How have you been? I've had no such dramas fortunately so um, yeah things have been quite peaceful really. Oh good. We've both got a holiday coming up between this podcast and next podcast. So I'm going to be going to Amsterdam and uh, Paris and Palma in Spain. I'm going to Disneyland Paris. Hooray! Wow! How wonderful. And then we're going to have a vacay together afterwards because I'm going to come and visit you. You certainly are. So shall we dive into book four? Let's. Let's. So five go to Smuggler's Top. A tree has fallen on the roof at Kieran Cottage and smashed it right at the start of the holidays. The four children are sent away to stay with friends on Castaway Hill, with Timmy in hiding. But all is not as it seems at the old house with its hidden passages, underground tunnels, and when not one but two people disappear, a thrilling adventure begins. What are the secrets of Smuggler's Top and how will they be revealed? Sounds kind of spooky. <laughs> and actually, when the children go to Smuggler's Top, I found the house quite spooky. Sort of, I don't know, there were a lot of secret passages and when we've had secret passages before, they've been kind of fun and a bit mysterious. But in this, I don't know. It was all a bit too dark. It's quite frightening. I think they're all very brave in this book. It is quite grim, a grim sort of setup, knowing that those passages were used for smugglers. Mm. Like with the other passages, you could imagine, oh, it just links Kieran Cottage to the farm. But this seems yes. more dark. And then also there was the added scariness of the um, the marshes that might just suck you in and you'll never be seen again if you step off the path. Absolutely. Very scary. Yeah, because, do you know what, I think when I was reading it, usually the peril in these books is quite concentrated. So, you know, they'll see the danger from afar, but it's only in the last few chapters where they're at gunpoint or they're prisoners or, you know, the really scary stuff's happening. But in this, mm. I think, for me, it felt like there was a bit of an undercurrent of peril throughout the whole story. Yeah, I think I agree with you, actually, on that. Shall we start with chapter one? Please, let's. And I would like to say, just before we start, between us recording 
last month's episode and this one, you pointed out to me that we only ever really get a description, a physical description of George, and I hadn't noticed it before. So in this book, I was looking out for any indicators about what the children looked like. And you were absolutely right. I mean, obviously, I never doubted you. But in this first chapter, we've got Julian described as a tall, strong boy with a determined face. Anne is just his younger sister. (laughs) And then Dick is a boy with a pleasant face. It's It's quite interesting because George, you know, we have... George looked more like a boy than a girl, for she wore her hair very short and it curled close about her head. She too had a determined face, like Julian. And then throughout the story, we get little tidbits of what she looks like. But it's quite nice in a way, because it means that Julian, Dick and Anne can just look exactly like what I think they look like, which actually, a little bit unimaginatively, is just whatever they look like on the cover of the book. Yeah, as I think we've said before, Enid Blyton based George on herself. So she obviously Mm. has very strong feelings about the way George should look. And the others, it's obviously not necessary to the plot, whether Julian is blonde or brown haired or ginger haired. It's of no relevance or importance Mm. to the author. So it doesn't get mentioned. And also, I suppose it's one of those things where if you're writing a long series, you don't want to tie yourself down in case it becomes important in another book yeah of course if somebody has to be mistaken for julian for example it might be helpful in that book if julian is blonde and then if he's not you know what i mean i don't know yeah i think i'm I'm getting at something without actually trying to give anything away which is really tricky Of course. Okay, so mysteries that may be coming up for me, the new reader in the future. I've tried to sort of layer it in code. So there might be somebody out there who knows what I mean, but I doubt it because I've put like layers and layers of coding on that. Or so I think I have. Do you know if we ever do a spoiler, so we'll say, you know, if you don't want it spoiled, don't listen for the next 30 seconds. We should just do that, but with me. I'll just close my ears and you can say, <laughs> hey, listeners who know what's going on, this no, is what because... I mean in book seven, where... No, 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 because I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but if anybody thinks they know what I'm talking about, <laughs> then um, drop us an email, famous5pod at gmail.com. It's only me that the email will come to. You won't spoil anything for Jen, so let me know. And actually, Katie, if you make a note of your heavily coded message just then, so that when that comes up in whichever book it's in in the future, you can bring us back to this and we'll all say, oh, or whatever we say when we're surprised. I will do. Okay, good. I'll write it on a little slip of paper and I'll put it in the specific book that it refers to. Excellent. Okay, then. Right. Enough of spoilers of the future. Yes. Please. (laughs) Break it down for us. What does happen in chapter one, back to Kieran Cottage? It's the Easter holidays and the five are on their way to Kieran talking about George's father and mother and the fun that they're going to have. But when they arrive, they realise how cold and windy it is. And Uncle Quentin appears to have had a complete change of character and has told Aunt Fanny that he wants to go for walks with them and go out in the boat and generally just hang out, which is the total opposite of the Uncle Quentin that we know. Yeah, absolutely. The wind rattles round Kieran Cottage as Uncle Quentin asks Julian and Dick if they know Pierre Lenoir. 
They tell him he means Sooty, who is mad as a hatter and in Dick's year at school. Uncle Quentin has invited Sooty's father to stay as he's interested in the same unspecific science as Uncle Quentin. The boys think it would be great to have Sooty to stay, what with his pranks and his climbing ability. Sooty does sound like fabulous fun when Dick describes him. Sooty's quite mad. He never does as he's told. He climbs like a monkey and he can be awfully cheeky. I was very excited for Sooty to get here. I liked how ominous the weather was in this. Um, they, Ina Blyton talks a lot about how it's howling over the sea and they've pulled all the boats up. And you can tell it's going to be a really good, exciting bit of the story. So I was looking forward to how that was going to um, pan out. And then... Just harking back to book one, when you loved how Anne thought that Timmy thought that the beached ship was a whale. Mm. There was a bit here that made me laugh. So the wind's howling around the house and the windows are shaking and the doors are shaking and the mats are all flying about as the draft gets underneath them. And uh, they look as if they've got snakes wriggling underneath them, said Anne. Timmy watched them and growled. He was a clever dog, but he did not know why the mats wriggled in such a strange way. And I thought, he probably thinks there's a whale. In chapter two, it's the night and a tree falls on Kieran Cottage. Luckily, Mm. Julian woke up before it happened and managed to clear the upstairs, but they do stay in the house. Timmy barking and growling madly and Anne feels like doing the same. The tree crashed into the girls' room. And Uncle Quentin states that they would have been killed if they hadn't have woken up, traumatising everyone. I know! Uncle Quentin feels responsible and Aunt Fanny is stern as she'd asked him to get the tree sorted and he hadn't done it. So, Uncle Quentin. <laughs> and then they hunt around for things to sleep on and try their best to go to sleep. When it was really windy and I was expecting something exciting to happen, I didn't think it was going to be a near-death experience for the girls. And... Uncle Quentin, you should have got that tree sorted, but he's too busy with his unspecified science. Yeah, it's important, unspecified science. (laughs) Very important, very unspecified. Do you know, it would be really interesting if somebody who was an expert in science looked at the sort of things that Uncle Quentin gets up to in the 21 books and told us exactly what sort of scientist they thought Quentin was. Oh, of course. Yeah, because there's so many little things that happen in the books that after they've happened, I think, oh, I should have made a note of it. But before he was doing, I don't know, miscellaneous testing. And then in this one, he's looking at, well, I won't give away the ending. But he's looking at something that seems completely different to mm. what he was on about in the first few books. But who knows? He's got more money now. Maybe he's expanded his field. <laughs> nice, because expanding a field is almost exactly what he wants to do. Yes. <laughs> that was actually a really good pun, even though I didn't intend it to be. Well done myself. <laughs> In chapter three, the storm has died down and the lady who helps Aunt Fanny during the day called rather unimaginatively Mrs. Daly. And where's Joanna? Looks at the house and, well, where is Joanna? She's not even mentioned. And I mean, I assume that she sleeps somewhere downstairs. I feel like I got that idea from one of the previous books. But I don't know, she's not there, they don't mention her, she doesn't help out, maybe she's on her holidays. They usually mention if she's not there, because she was away in Five Runaway together, looking after her mum, so they do usually mention it. Do you know, There's. um, I noticed in this book there's a lot of very excellent getting rid of the adults, and I think um, in 
Enid Blyton's haste to get rid of them so the adventure can happen. She just, I just completely forgot about Joanna. They look at the house in the daylight and realise it will take a long time to mend and the children must go back to school. Is there absolutely nobody else that they know that could have four children? I take it Julian and Dick and Anne's mum and dad are away on another holiday. And their house is shut up for a month. But they have no other family members or friends or anything. They're always going to visit sick family members, so why can't they? one of those take them all in, even though they're sick? That's true, and also, I mean, they could even potentially go and stay with, I don't know, like Alf the Fisher Boys family. (laughs) He hasn't got enough space, he only lives in a tiny little fishing shack. Oh, he doesn't have enough space. Because I was thinking, even if, you know, sending four children to stay with someone's quite a big ask, but Uncle Quentin and Aunt Fanny have got money now, so they could, you know, they could give some money to take the children. I don't know. What's wrong with the hotel? Well... So all this mysterious science is taking over. But to progress the story, Uncle Quentin telephones Mr Lenoir, who he is sort of friends with, but not really. They've written a few letters to each other. And after a short phone call, he announces that it's all sorted, except Timmy can't go too. Quentin ignoring everything he knows about his daughter and shrugs that fact off. We find out that Smuggler's Top is the name of the house. It's built on a marshland and is a hill that rises up out of it. It's peculiar. And then George finds out. And old George returns. She sulks and refuses to go. But then oddly, she asks which road they will take and then goes on a long walk with Timmy. I liked this bit very much, by the way, because... You know, we all know she's not going to go without Timmy. So we know she's planning something. (laughs) And she's doing that thing where she doesn't tell the other children, which I don't like because I like it when they're all very chummy with each other. But George goes on this long walk with Timmy and she comes back without him and everyone's like, oh, where's Tim? And she just says, out somewhere, very mysteriously. (laughs) And um, then, are you coming with us, George? Asked Julian, looking at her. Yes, I've made up my mind to, said George, but for some reason, she wouldn't look Julian in the eyes. He wondered why. I was loving it. We all know why. Come on, Julian. (laughs) The children get bundled into the car without any explanation about Timmy, and then George asks the driver to stop, and in the car bounds Timmy. Now, I like to think that Alf the Fisher Boy has been sat with Timmy at the side of the road for upwards of three hours. (laughs) He'd do it for George. He's a very good friend to her. I absolutely want a story written from the perspective of Alf the Fisher Boy. Like from the minute George got Timmy to the last adventure he appears in, which I don't know what which one it is. There's got to be scope there for I was just a normal fisher boy till I met <laughs> Georgina Kieran. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, I would actually love that. I remember it well. It was near Easter and I had to sit by the side of the road for three hours with Timmy. And also when she had Timmy as a puppy and he couldn't live at the house, he stayed with Alf. So Alf would have all of Timmy's puppy stories too, which would be great. Oh, yeah. I remember well (laughs) one day when Timmy stole a leg of lamb. (laughs) (laughs) He would as well. Oh, Alf. How wonderful. In chapter four... The car speeds on, stopping at an inn for lunch. At half past twelve, he drew up outside an old inn, and they all trooped in. Julian took charge and ordered lunch. It was a very good one, and all the children enjoyed it. 
So did Timmy. The innkeeper liked dogs and put down such a piled-up plate for Timmy that the dog hardly liked to begin on his meal in case it was not for him. He looked up at George and she nodded to him. It's your dinner, Timmy. Eat it up. So he ate it, hoping that if they were going to stay anywhere, they might be staying at the inn. Meals like this did not arrive every day for a hungry dog. Bless him. (laughs) That's so sweet. I love it when you get Timmy's point of view. Yes. And quite often it's just, he was happy because George was there. But sometimes it's like, he dare not eat it in case it wasn't for him. (laughs) Oh, he's such a good boy. They learn that the place where Smuggler's Top is, is called Castaway. They take a road across the marshes, which is very dangerous and boggy. And yet the only adult there lets them all out of the car to have a good look. They arrive at the very odd place with a wall all the way round it. The road became steeper and the driver put the engine into a lower gear. It groaned up the hill. Then it came to an archway from which old gates were fastened back. It passed through and the children were in Castaway. It's almost as if we've gone back through the centuries to somewhere that existed ages ago, said Julian, peering at the old houses and shops with their cobbled streets, their diamond-paned windows and old stout doors. They went up the winding high street and came at last to a big gateway set with wrought iron gates. The driver hooted and they opened. They swept into a steep drive and at last stopped before Smuggler's Top. I see what you mean though. It does all sound spooky and not very friendly or welcoming. Yeah, I think that's part of it as well. It It isn't friendly. Yeah, it's quite scary, I think. And... This is the first time we've seen the five be away from Kirin. Of course, yeah. Yes. So this is the first time that they're away from home that we know of and not with family. So it must be quite a big, scary thing to do. Yeah, and they are little because, you know, they stay the same ages. So the oldest of them is only 13, which isn't, you know, that's not terrifically Mm. big to be off in a really scary place with a boy you know from school and his parents that you've never met absolutely they get to the house and meet sooty and mary bell sooty has dark hair dark eyes and mary bell is pale and delicate and blonde when sooty sees timmy he starts to worry his stepfather beat him when he brought home a stray george says she'll just go home and sooty tells her not to he'll think of something we get a nice description of Sooty in this chapter too. Um, well, you get described to us that he's very dark, he's got black hair, black eyes, black eyebrows and a brown face. And then it says Maribel looks pale and delicate. And um, also we get a little bit about his personality because it says that he's nice. Everyone liked him at once. George found herself twinkling at him in a way quite strange for her. For usually she was shy of strangers and would not make friends for some time. But who could help liking Sooty with his dancing black eyes and his really wicked grin? He sounds so sweet. I was a big fan of Sooty. And he won't let George just go home. They're going to sort something out. Yeah, that's and he's <clears throat> willing to help her, even though, I mean, a bit sinister. He was beaten so hard he couldn't sit down when he brought a stray dog home once. And he's still willing to help George, so... Good boy, Sooty. He knows the risks and does it anyway. Mm. In chapter five, Sooty shoves George through a secret door, which is a bit unnecessary, and they head to a secret passage. A secret. Actually, we get another little thing about Sooty here, which I liked. George tells him off for pushing her, 
and says, Timmy will bite you if you push me about. And Sooty says, no, he won't. Dogs like me. Even if I boxed your ears, your dog would only wag his tail at me. I thought he was a bit of a magician when he said that. <laughs> they, When they head to the secret passage, it said, A secret passage sounded thrilling. Feeling rather as if they were in an adventure story, the children went quietly to the door and into the room beyond. Now, they've been in secret passages before. They have, haven't they? I They've been in secret passages hmm. many times. Pretty much every book they go in some sort of passage. You know, even in the first book where they're climbing in down the little tunnels and things. That's, you know, they're always in kind of creepy places because they're so brave. The secret passage goes all round the house and comes out in Sooty's room. He's rigged up a buzzer to know if anybody is on their way to his room. Clever boy. Anne looks out of the window and sees that they are on the top of a precipice. The house is at the top of a hill and they can see across the marshes. Sooty tells them there is a scheme afoot to drain the marshes and turn it into fields. They then discuss how they will look after Timmy in secret. Sooty mentions that his stepfather is odd, full of secrets. Anne asks if he's a smuggler, and Sooty talks about Mr. Barling, the local smuggler. The local smuggler. In chapter 6, we meet Block. He's a sort of butler, and is deaf. Anne thinks he has a shut face where you can't see what he's thinking. Oh, hello, Block, said Sooty airily. He turned to the others. This is Block, my stepfather's man, he said. He's deaf, so you can say what you like, but it's better not to, because though he doesn't hear, he seems to sense what we'd say. Anyway, I think it would be beastly to say things we wouldn't say in front of him if he wasn't deaf, said George, who had very strict ideas about things of that sort. I like that. Yeah, she's a good, she's a good egg. Block's quite scary from straight away. You know, and it says, it goes on to say that he looked all around as he spoke, almost as if he knew there was a dog and wondered where he had gone to, George thought in alarm. He's, yeah, he's a, he's a strange man. He's very intense as well, I think. They go and meet Mr. and Mrs. Lenoir. Mrs. Lenoir is a tiny mouse person, <laughs> and Mr. Lenoir is an unusual sort who seems to laugh at everything and have a go at Sooty when possible. The children are dismissed, re feeling rather cold towards Mr. Lenoir, and Sooty shows the children to their rooms. They agree that Timmy can be smuggled into George's room at night time. So the setup is that Timmy is having to live in dark passages, and they will get food to him and get him out for a walk, and then at night time smuggle him into George's room. Bit awful. Yeah, it's not great. No. In this chapter as well, we also learn about stepmothers and stepfathers because Anne bless her she is the littlest one as we're often reminded says is she a real mother or a stepmother too and Sooty scornfully says you don't have a stepmother and a stepfather you only have one or the other and actually this is um this is quite exciting for a book written in the 40s because Sooty and Mary Bell share a mother but they have a different mm -hmm. father and we find out that Sooty's father is actually his stepfather's brother. So what went on there? We don't find out, but it's very intriguing. So in Chapter 7, the children have a meal in Mary Bell's schoolroom without the adults, which they preferred. And Timmy has a strange time living mostly in the dark passage, but being fed. And on the first morning, the children take him out for a walk. George knows they can't take him out the front door, but Sooty knows another secret route. The book talks about Mary Bell and Anne teasing her for being shy. 
which made her cry. That's very un-Anne. Very un-Anne. And I feel like... I feel like that's the sort of thing that would have been said to Anne, you know, four books ago. Mm. So, yeah, it's very strange. They lift the carpet in Mary Bell's room and there is a trap door. But how to get Timmy down? In the laundry basket. Of course. They lower him down and Sooty leads them to the daylight. In chapter eight, Sooty says some of the other passages lead to other people's houses, like Mr. Barling. They come out in the opening where there are some rocks and they climb over the wall and into the town. Suddenly, they see Block. They have to pretend Timmy is astray, which confuses poor Tim. Block offers to throw a stone to make the dog go away. Who would do that? I know. And then as George pointlessly shouts at him, Mr. Barling appears. They convince him that George is just fond of dogs and wouldn't want to see one hurt. He asks George about her... F- ah, at Kirin said Mr. Barling, and seemed to prick up his long ears. Surely that is where that very clever scientist friend of Mr. Lenoir lives. Yes, he's my father, said George. Why, do you know him? I have heard of him, and of his very interesting experiments, said Mr. Barling. Mr. Lenoir knows him well, I believe. Not awfully well, said George, puzzled. They just write to one another, I think. My father telephoned to Mr. Lenoir to ask him if he could have us to stay while our house is being mended. "'Oh, and Mr. Lenoir, of course, was only too delighted to have the whole company of you,' said Mr. Barling. "'Such a good, generous fellow, your father, Pierre, thinking that it was strange of him to say nice things in such a nasty voice.' They felt uncomfortable. It was plain that Mr. Barling did not like Mr. Lenoir at all. Well, neither did they, but they didn't like Mr. Barling any better. They get back to Smuggler's Top ten minutes before dinner, and this is the pattern that they fall into.' And everything's going fine. Until? Until everything kicks off. <laughs> Until chapter nine. Mm-hmm. Sooty wakes Julian and Dick one night to tell him he thinks someone's signalling from the tower of the house. They go to a small room that has a view back at the house that includes the tower. And lo and behold, there is a slow flashing of a torch from the tower. Julian wonders if it's Mr. Lenoir, but Sooty heard him snoring in his room. They think it might be Block. They check his room and see the outline of his body in bed. The boys creep to the bottom of the steps of the tower, and Sooty goes up to see if he can see anything, but he has to hide as the man descends the stairs and doesn't see his face. At the bottom of the stairs, Julian and Dick hide in a curtain. Julian gets stuck in it, but Dick is able to follow the man into Block's room. Expecting to see two men in there, Dick looks in and only sees Block, still in bed. It's a mystery. It is a mystery. Is it a mystery? Well, I thought, what if there are two blocks at this point? Uh, That was my suspicion. Interesting. Mm. The boys decide to go up to the tower room and they see very small lights coming over the marshes. Smugglers! I would like to say that... um, sort of at the start of this chapter when they just before they think they're going to go up the tower and they've just seen the block is in bed and they're trying to think who's signaling up in the tower and Sooty says well who can it be then it couldn't possibly be mother or sarah or harriet and i really enjoyed how he just writes off the possibility of any ladies being criminals just like well it's not going to be any of them it's got to be one of the fellows he was right, yes. of course, but if it had been a lady criminal, he would have been scuppered. 
Yeah, I'd have got away with it. During breakfast in chapter 10, Anne blurts out, What does Mr Barling smuggle? Not noticing Block was there and gets kicked by Sooty twice. She complains and Sooty says he's never been convinced that Block is actually deaf. In the town, they see Block again. They pretend Tim is a stray that they've befriended. He tells them if they bring the dog back, Mr Lenoir would have him killed. Wow. Back at the house, they're all in Mary Bell's room with the door locked. Timmy growls and George realises somebody is outside the door. She hides Tim and gets the others to talk very loudly to cover any noise. While she watches the door handle turn really slowly until the person doing it realises the door is locked. They think it's Block and he's snooping. During dinner time, Timmy, who's in the passageway, makes a noise. Block comes in and the children act like nothing is happening. Then when he's left, Mr Lenoir comes in and Timmy barks Timmy. again. In chapter 11, the children pretend they didn't hear anything and hope Timmy doesn't do it again. But the children are suspicious that Mr Lenoir has been told that there was a dog barking. He asks if they heard the noise and they highlight every single noise in the house except the bark of a dog, making Mr Lenoir very angry. I really liked this bit because all the children are being quite naughty um, and they're all being quite bold as well. Um, I love it when when they definitely hear a bark and then Mr Lenoir's getting angry and they hear a gull outside the window Dick says, oh, that gull. Yes, we often hear the gulls. Sometimes they seem to mew like a cat. <laughs> All cheery. And then later, even Anne is just saying, when he's like, tell me what that noise is. And Anne says, I can hear the wind. Bless them. They are naughty, but very good with them. He tells them that when he catches the dog, he will poison it, leaving George fuming and deciding that she's going home. Fair enough. Phones home planning to say that she's homesick, but nobody answers. <clears throat> Mrs. Lenoir appears. I always sort of imagine her drifting in in a kind of, like, house dress that's kind of lightweight and just, like, as if she's weightless. I imagine her a little bit like Professor Trelawney in the Harry Potter films, where she just sort of wafts around in clothes that are a bit weird and don't really fit her, and she always looks a bit spooked. Yes, yeah, so she appears to tell her that no one can live at Kieran at the minute because of the roof, and so Aunt Fanny and Uncle Quentin have gone away, but they have been invited to stay at Smuggler's Top. Sooty suggests that they take Timmy to one of the villagers until it's time to go home, which probably would have been a better idea, and I wonder if um, Alf the Fisherboy has a cousin that lives nearby. Oh, Alf the Fisherboy's cousin, Ralph yeah. the Fisherboy. Yes, you know... I hadn't really thought about it before reading the book. I thought, oh, yeah, they've got to keep Timmy here. Ooh. And then Sooty says, well, we could just see if someone else can look after him. And I thought, of course. Why didn't? Why wasn't that one of the first options? Just There's plenty of nice people who would take care of a dog if you said, oh, I'll bring you the food for him. Of course. Oh, in, oh that's the drama, doesn't it? In Chapter 12, the phone rings and Uncle Quentin is coming, but Aunt Fanny needs to stay with her aunt, who is ill. Right. Okay. Getting ready to release Timmy, Sooty spies Block's feet sticking out from behind a curtain. Oh, Block. Sooty runs mm. to tell the others and plan an attack. 
On the pretense that he is a robber, they would jump on him and use this as an opportunity to sneak Timmy past. But during the attack, Timmy wants a piece of the action and bites Block's leg. George has to <laughs> slap Timmy this. to get him away. Suddenly, Mr. Lenoir <laughs> breaks up the ambush and the children pretend they really do think it is a robber. And then they have to explain the bite. This was just all brilliant. I do like as well where it says that um, Sooty gets in two or three well-aimed punches. Block had often got him into trouble with his father and now Sooty was getting a bit of his own back. I just thought, yes, you would, wouldn't you? If you were sort of a naughty, cheeky boy anyway and the person is always getting you in trouble, you're pretending you think they're a robber, you would you would get a good, good few. I won't stand this sort of thing, he raged. Look here at my leg, sir. I've been bitten. Only a dog could have done that. See my leg. Sure enough, there were marks of teeth on his leg slowly turning purple. Timmy had taken a good nip and almost gone through the skin. "'There's no dog here,' said Mrs. Lenoir, coming timidly up the stairs at last. "'You couldn't have been bitten by a dog, Block.' "'Who bit him, then?' demanded Mr. Lenoir, turning fiercely on poor Mrs. Lenoir. "'This is my favourite bit.' "'Do you think I could have bitten him in my excitement?' (laughs) suddenly said Sooty, to the enormous surprise of the others, and to their immense amusement.' (laughs) He spoke very seriously with a worried look on his face. When I lose my temper, I hardly know what I do. Do you think I bit him? (laughs) Bah, said Mr. Lenoir in disgust. Don't talk nonsense, boy. I'll have you punished if I think you go about biting people. Get up, Block. You're not badly hurt. My teeth do feel a bit funny now I come to think of it, said Sooty, opening and shutting his mouth as if to see if they were all right. I think I'd better go and clean them. I feel as though I've got taste of Block's ankle in my mouth and it isn't nice. Brilliant. That's probably my favourite part of the book. I love Sooty. I've based my voices on the audiobook that's read by Jan Francis, but she gave Mr Lenoir a French accent, but not Mrs Lenoir or the children. Mr Lenoir said that Block might leave because of this, but he doesn't. He threatens the children and Sooty threatens him right back. They then find out that Uncle Quentin is going to be given Sooty's room and that's the room they get Timmy out of. Block tidies it and locks it so George can't get in. He's awful. He is. Chapter 13. George is distraught. She wants to access the secret passage through Mr Lenoir's study and we know studies are a no-go area. Absolutely. She makes up her mind and goes to the study without telling anyone. George, have you learnt nothing? Oh, no. When the others realise she must be there, Sooty knocks on the door. But when Mr. Lenoir answers, Sooty can't believe that George would be in there. But she is, hiding in a wooden chest. And then when he leaves, she runs towards the panel, but Mr. Lenoir returns and she dives behind the sofa. After an age, Mr. Lenoir goes to the sofa for a nap, and George finally gets to the panel, but Mr. Lenoir awakes and catches her. She's removed to her bedroom with bread and water for the day. And as Block escorts her away, she shouts to Julian and Dick. In chapter 14, the others come running, but George is already locked in her room. Anne is more concerned about where she will sleep, and Mary Bell offers her a nighty. Bless. (laughs) George (laughs) George hatches a plan. She's going to use the ladder and climb out of the window onto the wall that goes around the town. As she walks around, she looks in some of the windows. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? And in one, she sees Mr. Barling, and he is talking to someone who looks a lot like Block. Hmm. Yeah, see, this added to my two Blocks conspiracy. 
Ah. Sooty is waiting for her and they sneak into the house and the children have a feast for George because obviously you cannot survive on bread and water. She tells him that she saw Block, but Sooty checks and he can see the shape of Block having a lie down in his bedroom. Were you wise to this yet? No. No, because you thought there was two blocks. And because it even says, when Sooty sees him in bed, he says, I could see the shape of his body and the dark patch of his head. Are there two blocks then? And I thought, there are two blocks. But I was I was just I was bought into what was happening. I was as excited as the children. <laughs> no, it's good. Good block, bad block. But actually, they're both bad blocks. Ah, double block. Yeah. In chapter 15, George asks if Uncle Quentin has arrived. He has, but he's clearly not desperate to see his daughter. She sneaks back into her room in time for Block to provide her with bread and water, and George throws the water at him. (laughs) This was awful. It turns out that Uncle Quentin is cross with George too, and she should be locked up for the next day as well if she doesn't apologise. Later that night, Sooty knocks on George's door to signal everyone has gone to bed. She walks around the walls again but they realise the study door is locked. Sooty says he'll creep into Uncle Quentin's room and get into the passageway. As he hides in the room, he hears a strange noise coming from the big window seat. The lid appears to be coming off, and a man enters the room. Sooty sees him lift Uncle Quentin and put him into the window seat. Sooty leaps up and shines a torch and shouts, Mr. Barling! And then he gets hit on the head. George, hearing all the noise, tiptoes to the door and finds the room empty. There's a lot of violence here. They whack Mm. Sooty on the head, even though he's just a small child. Yep. And we see that Uncle Quentin's put into the window seat. And later, I think in this chapter, we're going to find out it's something like a six-foot drop. So they just, what, they just threw him down there? Well, I don't think... The drop is as far... Do they actually say how far it is? Because George sort of falls down it at one point, and she's all right. And I think that's kind of the point that they say she falls down so that it's believable that Quentin was all right because he hasn't got any broken legs or anything. No, I remember it says that Uncle Quentin is a bit bruised from it. But yeah, maybe you're right. Mm. It's not as big. In chapter 16, George sits on the window seat wondering what on earth has happened when she hears someone coming. She flits under the bed and hears some clicking sounds. George thinks it's Block because of a little cough that he does. George arrives at Julian and Dick's room and tells them everything she saw and heard. They go and have a look at the room and see Sooty's torch. They have a look for the entrance to the secret passage and someone has removed the iron handle that opened the door. Julian is hopeful that Sooty and Uncle Quentin turn up in the morning and they don't want to tell Mr. Lenoir or Block. They fall asleep, and the boys are woken by Sarah delivering Uncle Quentin's breakfast. She tells Block, who fetches Mr. Lenoir, who quizzes the children, and Julian pulls out his police line that he used on the sticks in Book 3. In Chapter 17, Mr. Lenoir has no idea what Julian is on about, and then Julian refuses to speak in front of Block, and Mr. Lenoir sends him away. Mr. Lamoir seems to change in character and Julian is surprised by the way he's acting. Julian then accuses him of knowing everything, including the signalling from the tower, but it's clear that Mr. Lamoir has no idea at all. Mr. Lamoir suspects Mr. Barling of being the signaller, as he is certain Block has nothing to do with it. The children decide that they will do some sleuthing. Uncle Quentin and Sooty had to leave the room somehow, and they knew it wasn't by the door or the secret passage in the cupboard. And when the boys head off to Mr. Barling's, Julian refuses to let George go too. 
Oh, let me come too, begged George. No, said Julian. Certainly not. This is a rather dangerous adventure, and Mr. Barling is a bad and dangerous man. You and Marybell are certainly not to come. I'll take Dick. You are absolutely mean, began George, her eyes flashing. Aren't I as good as a boy? I'm going to come. Well, if you're as good as a boy, which I admit you are, said Julian, can't you stay and keep an eye on Anne and Marybell for us? We don't want them getting kidnapped too. Oh, don't go, George, said Anne. Stay here with us. I think it's mad to go anyhow, said George. Mr. Barling wouldn't let you in. And if you did get in, you wouldn't be able to find all of the secret places in his house. There must be as many and more as there are here. Julian couldn't help thinking George was right. Still, it was worth trying. But it's a good job that George doesn't go, because she gets everything done. The gardener at Mr. Barling's house tells Julian that Mr. Barling has gone away on holiday, which is baffling. And George has been back into the bedroom to see if they missed anything. She taps on the walls and the floor, and then she finds a small screw that must have come from the window seat. Then she realises the noise she heard was a screwdriver. She rushes off to find one and gets to work. The boys return in chapter 18 to question George as to what she's doing. They peer inside and see nothing but an empty cupboard. They're disappointed, but when George steps into it, the bottom swings open, revealing another secret way. Yes, and this is the bit I had thought about earlier. Once she's kicked the bottom out, it says that she kicked about in air for a moment and then scrambled out. Everyone looks down in silence. They looked down a straight yawning hole, which, however, came to an end only about eight feet down. Only about eight feet down, that's a long way to drop, but... So, yeah, so Uncle Quentin's bruised, but he's not broken. And as we see straight after that, Julian just jumps right down to see see what it's like. Just as they're planning to go down, Mr. Lenoir is at the door. He's spoken to Block, who knows nothing about it, and is so upset he's gone to bed. He has phoned the police, but the inspector is out. Never mind that they've had a child missing for nearly 24 hours. <laughs> Julian pops to Block's room and sees the outline of his body in his bed. This is when I thought... Maybe that's a fake block. And I'd thought it before, but then I got really excited about the idea of two blocks. But in this here, I thought he can't just be in bed all the time in the same position, not snoring. It's fake. (laughs) (laughs) I always, whenever I'm reading or watching anything, I always think, why did they bother? So why bother putting in the fact that they keep checking on block? Ah. And in in other things... You know, if there's a crime drama, it's like, why did they bother introducing that that guy has a son, he says two lines, and then you don't see him again? Because he's the murderer. That sort of thing. So always ask yourself why the writer or the author bothered. Anyway, moving on. They go back, re-screw the window seat, and Julian goes to speak to Mr. Lenoir, who tells him Block won't answer the bell that rings in his room, but Block is deaf or at least believed to be death. So why does Mr. Lenoir have a bell for him? Yeah, I also wondered this. How exactly is he going to get Block's attention with the bell? Hmm. Julian offers to go and speed Block along a bit, and in the bed he shoves Block in the shoulder, but it's not Block, it's pillows! And then I put, was Block a pillow all along? I just saw that and laughed. Yeah, that's the the (laughs) true... discovery that was the real mystery he's not a man oh he's pillows (laughs) and then the penny drops for julian and jen 
that Block's never <laughs> been in his room the million times they thought he was uh. in his room. In chapter 19, Uncle Quentin has been gagged and drugged and dropped down a hole. And sooty too. Then Barling and another man find their way through the tunnels using string, mm -hmm. which is very clever. They take the prisoners to a cave where there is water and a box as a table because it's always important to look after your prisoners. Yes, I'd put a little note in this section labelled taking care of prisoners because they always do. There's always food, there's always water, a little bed for them. Yeah, nice table. Yeah. Sooty tries to wake Uncle Quentin up, but he doesn't know his surname. So I'm guessing either he doesn't know Julian and Dix, which is a bit off because they're all at school together, or he doesn't know that they share the same surname. I still don't know what their surname is because you've told me that it is Kieran, but it hasn't come up in the book yet. So hasn't it for me and any other new readers? No, that we don't know. I don't know what any of their last names are. Any of the children, Julian, Anna, Dick, or um, Quentin and Fanny and George and Timmy. So I'd be sooty shouting Uncle Quentin at a man I've never met. <laughs> They haven't mentioned it yet. I'll let you know when they do. Yeah, please do, because I, I'm sure... Oh, okay. Uh, that's fair enough, then. I, I take it back. I, I would not blame Sooty for anything. Well, they, but you're right. They are at school together, and they... When um, Uncle Quentin said, do you know Pierre Lenoir, Dick and Julia straight away said, oh, yeah, that's Sooty. So they even knew him by his nickname, so they must... Sooty must know their last name, but anyway... He's he's distressed and he's been put down a hole and drugged, so forgiven. So I forgive Sooty for that, that's fine. He finally rouses Uncle Quentin, who is rather baffled, but he has been kidnapped, he is in the dark, he is in his pyjamas, and he is with Sooty, who is not his nephew. Yes. Later on, Block and Barling return. Block reveals he isn't deaf. Shocker. Oh. Mr. Barling explains that he is a smuggler and Block signals from the tower and because Uncle Quentin is going to help drain the marshes, Barling will go out of business. You're mad, said Uncle Quentin in disgust. Mr. Barling was a little mad. He had always felt a great satisfaction in being a successful smuggler in days when smuggling was almost at an end. He loved the thrill of knowing that his little ships were creeping in the mist towards the treacherous marshes. He liked to know that men were making their way over a small and narrow path over the misty marsh to the appointed meeting place bringing smuggled goods. You should have lived a hundred years ago or more, said Sooty, also feeling that Mr Barling was a little mad. You don't belong to nowadays. So Mr Barling is going to buy the plans from Uncle Quentin and have them destroyed and he's made up a document that Quentin just has to sign. This all seems very badly thought out. Uncle Quentin <laughs> yes. refuses. If it was me, I would have kidnapped Uncle Quentin's daughter and said, um, we'll give her back when we've got the plans. He's just going to buy them and destroy them. You'd be an excellent villain because A, you've thought out how really to manipulate Uncle Quentin and B, as a lady criminal, you will be suspected by no one. Exactly. Mm. In chapter 20, in another display of violence, Block beats Sooty. Yes. And he screams and as he does, guess who appears? Well, the chapter's called Timmy to the Rescue and it is Timmy. Yay! Barling and Block leg it. And Timmy eats as much of the food as he can, poor dog. <laughs> and then they ask Timmy to get them out of there. 
Timmy takes them to the marshes and then disappears as they get out into the open. So they sit on a rock and wonder what the others are up to. The others are now convinced of Block's guilt. They tell Mr. Lenoir everything, including who Timmy is. And Mr. Lenoir pretends he would have been totally lenient if they told him about Tim and had him boarded out. Even though earlier he did threaten to kill the dog. He beat his own stepson for taking in a stray. Beat his own stepson and threatened to kill a dog if there was a dog there. But now all of a sudden he doesn't mind there being a dog. Okay. And also we should note that all the way through Mr. Lenoir has been calling George a boy and no one has corrected him, which is great. Yes, yes, I did like that. The children go after Timmy and find the string, so they follow it. In chapter 21, they arrive at the place where Sooty and Uncle Quentin were held captive, but they meet Mr. Barling and Block, who reveal that Timmy was there. Mr. Barling says if they've gone off by themselves, they'd be lost forever. Anne lets out a little scream and says, It's all your fault, you horrid man, which is very brave of Anne. Yeah. But then Barling thinks he will tie them up and keep them as prisoners. But George yells for Timmy. And that's why he suddenly disappeared from Sooty and Uncle Quentin. The children follow Timmy and they meet up with Sooty and Uncle Quentin. And Timmy, who has never set foot out of the tunnel, which again seems odd, leads them across a safe path. However, he then slips, falls and lands in the marshes. In chapter two, as Timmy was sinking and everyone was watching helplessly, a lorry passed by and they made a safe path and rescued the dog. Uncle Quentin says he'll pay the man if he calls at Smuggler's Top and the man is just headed next door, so they all jump on. When they get back, Sarah is excited to give Timmy a bath and it all comes out to the police. Block was planted as a spy and he was signalling and pretending to be deaf and then suddenly Julian remembers that they're all down in the tunnels still. But before they do anything about them, Timmy comes in to meet a friend. He holds out his paw very politely and Mr. Lenoir is surprised by his good manners and thinks him a very fine fellow. George is allowed to keep Timmy in the house but out of Mr. Lenoir's way. Timmy is entrusted once more to aid the police in assisting to find the baddies. Sooty tells the others that they'll soon be leaving Smuggler's Top. Mrs. Lenoir got so upset that Mr. Lenoir said he would sell the place. Mary Bell is so glad. She doesn't want any more adventures. Ah, but we do, said the others. So no doubt they will get them. Adventures always come to the adventurous. There's no doubt about that. The end. That's a nice ending for this book. Adventures always come to the adventurous. They do. In this section... I normally play you a clip from the 1970s version of The Famous Five and the 1990s version of The Famous Five. However, I cannot for the life of me find the 1996 version anywhere and I have never seen it so I can't even try and recall what happens and how it's different. So so the time for the 70s version to shine is now. This is my Famous Five. I had so many of these videos and Smuggler's Top came on a video that had, I think, three or four adventures on it. And some of the episodes I know word for word. Like, for example, there's a bit where Sooty goes, there's something I've got to find out first. And just the way (laughs) that he says it has sort of stuck with me forever. (laughs) Um, I completely recommend that you look it up and give it a watch. It's, It's quite dated. The acting is 
rather questionable, but you're watching my childhood right there. So this clip is right at the end of the episode where they return all muddy and hungry. And it stars the usual five as well as Michael Benz as Uncle Quentin, John Carson as Mr. Lenoir, Ingrid Hafner as Mrs. Lenoir, Richard Shaw as the inspector, Jonathan Wilmot as Sooty and Charlotte Avery as Mary Bell. It was adapted by Gloria Tours and directed by Peter Duffel. I'm afraid that Barling has spent much of his life living in the past. Yes, but he'll have plenty of time to get used to living in the present where he's going. What about his smuggled goods? Oh, Her Majesty Scotland would look after those for him. What? I've given him a bath, Mr. Lenoir. Timmy, meet your friend. Sit. Give your paw. I say, it's not like a dog at all. <laughs> oh, he's like a real proper dog, all right. Only much more clever than most. Uh, when you want to get rid of him, we can use dogs like him on the force. Oh, no, no, no. But for my daughter's total inability to be separated from that animated heart drug, I doubt if Suti and I be here to tell the tale. <laughs> well, seeing that Timmy is such a fine fellow and so very sensible, perhaps we could bend the rules a little. Oh, Thank you. Oh, Timmy, what do you think you're doing, you bad boy? I think he's at it. I do like watching these after we've read the book and seeing how it's been interpreted. And I liked that Timmy came up and met Mr. Lenoir and he did his little paw shake and Mr. Lenoir's very impressed with him. And then Timmy walks over to the lunch and just scoffs an entire plate of sandwiches. I thought you were well behaved, <laughs> Timmy. Just like a little person. He is, but he's also hungry. Oh, he is, because he's been down in the tunnels for days, poor thing. And they do say, even Mr. Lenoir says, oh, I think he's earned them. So he's all right. Well... These episodes in the 1970s, they every single episode ends with laughter. Excellent. And so they have to kind of crowbar in things to laugh about. Sometimes someone will make a really terrible joke <laughs> or something. So, yes, in this case, it's everybody laugh at Timmy eating the sandwiches. And it's that awkward laugh that lasts for just too long as well. Oh, it does, because... When I watched it and he ate the first sandwiches and I thought, oh, so naughty, someone will tell him to stop. And then they say, he's earned them and then eats a few more and a few more and a few more. And then there's two <laughs> left and he eats those two. And it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> okay. It's very sweet. I do like it. <laughs> I wouldn't even want to hazard a guess at how many times I've watched that episode from about the age of seven or eight. Many, if after all these years you still remember the lines, I would think you probably watched a lot. Many, many times. I'll guess many times, yes. <laughs> so, what have we learnt from Five Go to Smuggler's Top? Well, I've learnt that Alf the Fisherboy should have a book written about him. Absolutely. If... Your butler comes at the sound of a bell. He is probably just pretending to be deaf. Ring your hosts ahead of time and tell them you have a dog. If you are a lady and you want a life of crime, go ahead because you will never be suspected. 
If there are high winds, watch out for massive trees. We learned some good life lessons from Famous Five. We do. I think we should compile them. Perhaps I'll put them up on the website. Oh, you should, yes. They are always good. Who was your hero of the book? Well, I got to very near the end of the book thinking, I don't think anybody deserves to be the hero because only we can only pick one of the five. Mm. And honestly, we've talked about it off recording. Dick doesn't have a lot to do. Anne doesn't really have a lot to do. In a way, Julian sort of doesn't. And then Timmy comes in and saves the day about three times in as many hours. So, Timmy. It's got to be Timmy. I agree with you because I felt the same way where I sort of... There were points when I thought Julian or George, but then they had... Julian had a lot of other moments where he wasn't really doing anything and hardly present. And George did a lot of doing things on her own and not telling everybody else, which is not my favourite. I like it when they're all team players. Um, and I, I agree, Timmy. And actually, the sweetest moment of the book was about Timmy, which I'll read to you. And it's just, it's in chapter 20, so quite near the end, which is also called Timmy to the Rescue. George is shouting for Timmy, but she's, you know, miles away from him underground. And it says, Timmy didn't hear. He was too far away. But the dog suddenly felt uneasy. He was with George's father and Sooty at the edge of the marsh, about to lead them round the hill to safety, but he stopped and listened. He could hear nothing, of course, but Timmy knew that George was in danger. He knew that his beloved little mistress needed him. His ears did not tell him, nor did his nose, but his heart told him George was in danger. He turned and fled back into the tunnel. He's a good boy. Yeah, so Timmy, I agree, hero of the book, which means that Timmy's now in the lead with two. Anne has got one and Dick has got one. So we're still waiting on Julian and George to shine, which I'm sure they will. And I would, I'd like to give an honourable mention to Sooty Lenoir because he was very fun and he was very brave. And we can't give him hero of the book because he's not one of the five, but he did do a good job. And I really hope he's in another book in the future. He is sort of Mary Bell as well, but he's mainly the first um, child ally that the five have. And it will be worth sort of tracking as we go further on when they meet a friend, just how many sort of friends they make along the way. Oh, okay. Because they meet more friends. Ooh. So what can we expect next time? Next time, book five, five go off in a caravan. We can expect horses, dogs and monkeys. Ooh. I'm excited. I love animals in stories and this sounds wonderful. Before we go... We need to say thank you so much to Charlie, who wrote a fantastic review on iTunes. It was very much appreciated. Sorry it's taken us so long to mention you, and thank you. And I also wanted to say thank you very much, Charlie. Your review was really sweet, and I read it to everybody in my family. And if anybody else would like to write a review, head on to iTunes. You can like and subscribe. That would be amazing. We also have a Twitter we do. We are at Famous5Pod on Twitter. 
And then we've got a website, which is www.famous5pod.wordpress.com. And you can email us, should you wish, which is famous5pod at gmail.com. Always remember that I am hashtag Team George. And this week I was hashtag Team Sooty as a special guest. But next week it will be back to me trying to figure out if I'm Team Anne or Team Dick. Oh, and the other thing we should mention is that September marks the 75th year of The Famous Five. The first book was written in 1942. Ah, so that means we should have our Famous Five party where we eat all the foods that are outlined in the books. And you're all invited. Thank you so much for listening to The Famous Five podcast. And please join us next month for more adventures. Goodbye. Goodbye.